Over President's Day weekend, our family went on a ski trip to um, Nelson, British Columbia. We drove the four of us over over 1,100 miles uh, round trip. And one of the fun games that I like to play on road trips is 20 questions. Do you guys like that one? I love to find like obscure animals or biology terms that I can try and stump Corey and the kids with. But more than, uh, more than that, I love to be the one asking the questions. I like to find out how each question I ask unveils more and more of the puzzle. And the most satisfying thing, of course, is see how few questions it takes to figure out um, what it is that they're trying to to, uh, to cover up. Well, over the, the past few weeks, we've been exploring the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, otherwise known as the Beatitudes, and we've covered four of them to be exact, which means we have four more to go. Now, if I were to sum up those first four Beatitudes 20 questions style, we might do it like this. Okay, is it a person? Yes. Okay. Is this person poor in spirit? And declared righteous because theirs is the kingdom of heaven? You guys say yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, Is this person mourning but declared righteous because they'll be comforted? Oh, okay. Uh, Is this person humble and declared blessed because they will inherit the earth? Does this person hunger and thirst for righteousness because they are declared blessed because they'll be satisfied? I've got it. I've got it. This is a person who has surrendered their life to Jesus and is bearing fruit of that relationship by the power of the Holy Spirit. If a person is bearing those beatitude qualities, they are surrendered to Jesus and bearing fruit of that relationship by the power of the Spirit. What we've been describing is a person or people. A person bearing the qualities of kingdom of God life by the power of God in their life. The beatitude life that Jesus describes is a way of living or a way of life that we inherit through surrender to Jesus. Okay, So that beatitude life, or another way to put that, if we start living like those beatitudes, it's because we've surrendered ourselves to Jesus and He is bearing fruit, those qualities in our life. And surrendering to Jesus means that we surrender to His gospel or good news. And what that is, is He came declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's actually coming in. And guess what? Jesus is the king. And so He says, hey, start acting as if I were the king and not you and not somebody else. But, but Jesus is the king. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll recognize that I'm beginning each of these sermons on the Beatitudes with a pretty long introductory recap. I don't apologize at all. That's not what I'm doing. (laughs) Because I think it's absolutely vital each week that we we remember what the Beatitudes are and what they are not. That we don't turn Jesus' good news into mere good advice. These Beatitudes are not moral ideals that we strive to attain through our willpower. In fact, all we need to do to realize that the Beatitudes are more than just simple ideals is to look at the context. The Beatitudes start in Matthew 5. Well, in Matthew 4, 
Jesus is coming in and declaring the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, that is breaking into our world, that it's arriving with Him. And He is not only declaring with His mouth this new kingdom, but He's showing proof of this kingdom. He's healing people, and He's setting captives free, and He's casting out demons, and He's reconciling people, and He's doing all of these things free of charge, out of pure mercy and grace, before anybody has done anything to merit this good news. So a large crowd begins to gather, and Jesus goes up on a hill, just like Moses did so many hundreds of years before, and he's speaking to a crowd of real people. Real people who were actually, some of them poor in spirit, some of them were actually mourning about their situation, some of them actually were meek and humble. And Jesus declares that God's kingdom is available to them. You know, sometimes we, we read the Sermon on the Mount and we get the picture that it's just this isolated chunk of teaching that's in, a, in an old book and we figure out how we can try and do it. And we have to remember that it's a, there's an actual setting to this story. That there's crowds of people. Jesus is talking to a specific crowd of people. And he's saying, even though you're mourning, even though you're poor in spirit, the kingdom is available to you too. You see, the people uh, in the crowds who were poor in spirit and who were mourning and who were meek and who hungered and thirst for a different kind of righteousness, these are the people that their religious leaders and their politicians were saying, people like you aren't going to be part of the kingdom when it comes. Because people that are part of the kingdom, they're good like us. And bad things don't happen to those kind of people. And Jesus comes in and turns the world on their head says, listen, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Even you, maybe even especially you, the kingdom is yours. There's more. We dig a little bit deeper and we find that these first four Beatitudes actually do have some admirable qualities. You know, it, it's actually a good and healthy thing to recognize that you have a little poverty of spirit. Why? Because when we recognize that we're not all that, we, need, we recognize our need for Jesus as well. When we begin to see our poverty of spirit, we become people who see the world differently. We see the world through Jesus' eyes. And then we find that we mourn maybe the state of our souls. Maybe you mourn some of the thoughts that go through your head. We mourn the condition of the world. Today we prayed for Japan, Libya, Egypt. I mean, we've got North Korea. So much going on. There's stuff going on in our own neighborhood that would make you weep uh, if you knew what was going on in some of the homes or some of the lives of families. And we have to mourn that we have some responsibility for some of these problems. No, I didn't cause a tsunami, I didn't cause an earthquake. Um, but some of the lifestyle choices that we make keep some other people impoverished. Some of the things that we consume and have plenty of, we could share more with other people. And so it causes us to have a healthy dose of humility. Healthy humility. Not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. 
And then we begin to have a, a genuine hunger and thirst for righteousness, for, for justice in, so, in broken social systems, and for right relatedness between us and God, and right relatedness between us and the other people in our lives, and right relatedness between us and the creation that we live in. It's what John Stott called the relentless logic of the Beatitudes. Each quality, as it takes root in our hearts, begins to, to, to grow the next quality. I start off poor in spirit, which leads me to actually have a, a mourning about my state, about the world. And, and that causes me to be humble. And in that humility, I want to, to see righteousness come. And I want to see the world changed. Now, there are eight Beatitudes. We've looked at four of them so far. And many scholars break these eight Beatitudes up into two groups. And there are some reasons for that. Um, first of all, there's literary reasons. Um, if you take the first four Beatitudes and you look at it in Greek, there's 36 words. There's 36 words in the second four Beatitudes. Uh, the first four Beatitudes, the Blesseds, all start with the Greek letter Pi. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's patokoi. And blessed are those who are mourning, penthuntes. And it goes on with these P words, these Pi words. So there's some literary stuff going on. The second reason they often break these groups into two, and this is uh, um, Bruner's work, is that the first four are what we might call passive Beatitudes. They're, it's basically just the way it is. Um, you're either poor in spirit or you're not. You can't really make yourself poor in spirit, right? Um, I, I shared the news with some of you earlier that uh, Corey's uncle passed away. And you know, our family's in a state of mourning today. Uh, it's not because we tried to be mourning. It's something that happened to us. It's a passive thing. Um, there's the meek and, and the humble. And it's just something that... It's a state that you're in. So you see what I'm saying? Those first four are a little more passive. The second four are actually things that we can kind of, uh, with Jesus' empowering, we can do. So, so uh, there's hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a disposition. It's a, uh, I long for the world to be changed. All right? But being merciful, which is the fifth beatitude, is actually doing something about it. Okay, and as we're going to see next week, actually being pure in heart is an active thing. Being a peacemaker is an active thing. And it sure is an active thing to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So the second four are more of the active beatitudes. This evening, we're going to look at the fifth beatitude. The first of the so-called active beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Strikes me as important to figure out, first of all, what this word merciful actually means. At face value, merciful sounds like something you know, kings can do or your boss at work can, can be. Uh, mercy sounds like someone in power that has mercy over someone with less power. So it's like an emperor in one of those gladiator movies where the guys are fighting and then the one gets the other down on the ground and he's got his gladius at his throat. And he looks to the emperor, right? He's got his thumb like this and... And, you know, this is no mercy, this is mercy. And uh, interesting side tangent, uh, what do the crowds always want? They always want, they always want this. Because, uh, I've said this before, but in Roman culture, uh, it's not popular to be graceful or merciful. It actually would incur your shame. This is very countercultural to say, blessed are the merciful. Uh, mercy sometimes what comes to mind is if Keith and Lori Turley actually let me score a point in racquetball, that would be merciful. You guys, if you ever want to play uh, a good pair in racquetball, Keith and Lori are your, 
or your ringers. But that's not the biblical understanding of mercy. The biblical understanding of the word eleemon, or what we translate as mercy, means generous in doing deeds of deliverance. Generous in doing deeds of deliverance. Uh, Glenn Stassen writes, Mercy is about a generous action that delivers someone from need or bondage. A generous action that delivers someone from need or bondage. And that need or bondage could be a guilt, need or bondage. So mercy has a, has a forgiveness aspect. And that need or bondage can be very physical. I pass someone on the street and they're hungry. Mercy would be to give food. Okay, So there's kind of two aspects, a forgiveness aspect and a tangible do something about somebody's physical need aspect. So think about that for a moment. Mercy is an active word. Blessed are the merciful, those who are actually doing merciful things. Think about that and then think about for a moment, what is the stereotypical view of an American Christian? What are some stereotypical views? Maybe not your own. Any? You guys don't watch any TV? or? Okay. Well, we're parodied in media oftentimes, I think, by the things that we don't do. The things that we stand against. Um, I... What popped up to my mind is Arrested Development, and you've got this character, Anne, her? Uh, if, if you haven't seen Arrested Development, it's okay. Uh, this Anne character is in so many shows, but she's plain, blends in with the background, can never do anything fun because she's always at like a hymn sing-along or something like that, or burning someone's secular music collection. She's all about representing the type of Christian that doesn't do the things that are fun, that is standing against everything else, right? Um, it's just total heel in the show. So what that's kind of saying is that to be a good Christian in America, that means you just got to be super religious and stand against things that people like and before the things that people don't like. Or this is something that always kills me. I'll be, you know, I've got a lot of friends who aren't Christians and I love that. They're more fun than a lot of you. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> I'm totally joking. Uh, but anyway, so we'll be hanging out, and you know, like these are people that life, their lifestyles are completely not beatitude lifestyles, you know, and, and they'll be talking about completely ungodly things, and all of a sudden somebody will do a swear word, right? And there'll be like, silence. Sorry, Pastor. As if the swear word was the big elephant in the room, like, oh no, you can talk about all this other stuff, but if you swear, uh oh, that's the cardinal sin of pastordom or something, like, oh, that's the worst thing in the world. I guess my point is that it's not just the media, that somewhere in our psyches is ingrained this idea that what God wants more of us than anything else is for us not to swear, or what God must want more than anything is for us to isolate ourselves from the world out there. What God must want is more religious offerings like going to church more and hanging out with Christians more and making sure that God is taken care of or something. Like, like we've got to make sure He's okay. And when faith in God gets corrupted, I think what usually happens is we get more and more religious and have more and more moral rules. Well, I've got news for all of us. It's pretty good news. Holiness, holiness is a very active thing. Holiness is not all about what we don't engage in. It's about how we treat other people. Jesus defined holiness as how we love other people. In fact, He lived a definition of holiness. He went to the cross for us. 
And mercy is an active word. You know, one of the different ways to get a grip on what mercy means is to look at what it doesn't mean. I've been telling you all along, one of my goals here is not just to, to, to preach the Word of God, but to teach the Word of God. So we're a biblical church, and what, what I keep saying about context, the importance of context, right? So we've got uh, Jesus' eight Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel. And you've got to think, okay, Matthew isn't just this guy who randomly wrote uh, things that Jesus said in a book and called it good. He, he crafted his gospel. And in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, he records eight different sayings of Jesus. Anyone know what those eight things are? I mean, not, not all eight of them, but the, the eight woes. Somebody said it. There's the eight woes. So there's these eight blessings, eight beatitudes, and later on there's these eight woes. And imagine this, they kind of match up with the beatitudes. Here's one of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, and guess what? Mercy. Mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other things. The weightier portions of the law. He says, you blind guides, you, it's like you're straining out these little gnats, these tiny little bugs. You're, you're putting your cheesecloth over your drink so you make sure that they don't get in your wine, and you're creating all these minutiae of laws, and behold, you're drinking a camel because you're so focused on these little things that you're missing the weightier things. Jesus isn't saying tithing's not important. He's not saying going to church isn't important. He's saying you ought to be doing that stuff. But the stuff I'm really talking to you about and what Israel was constantly getting trouble about wasn't so much their idolatry. It was about how they mistreated each other. That's what mercy is on about. It's how we treat one another. Now, where does this idea that God wants us to act with mercy and justice come from? Is, is this a new idea that Jesus is bringing? I mean, should we go easy on the Pharisees a little bit? Should we go easy on things? This, maybe it's a new thing. No, it's not a new thing. This is what the prophets have been saying all along. Now, here's something really interesting. Because I, I am one that I don't like to be too hard on the scribes and Pharisees. I, I mean... You read some of their other stuff, and it's like, they really genuinely were trying to do it right. They were just doing it wrong. But they were really trying to honor God and to be loyal to Him and to help their community be loyal to Him. And just the problem was they thought the way to do that was more rules. But listen to this from the prophet Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. This is God speaking through the prophet. And He says, For I delight in loyalty... Rather than sacrifice. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. In a knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Well now here's something really interesting. I've said this before but you know Hosea, these Old Testament prophets are written in Hebrew. And um, right before Jesus came on the scene that Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. Into the Septuagint. So all those Hebrew words were turned into Greek words. Do you know what the Greek word for loyalty is? Eleemon. The same word for mercy. So, when we are merciful toward one another, we are being loyal to God. That's goosebumps for me. Maybe I'm just a nerd. But that is awesome. Being loyal to God then is to be merciful 
to one another. So I have a question for us. How do we do this mercy thing? Fooled you. It's a trick question. Remember, remember, this is a beatitude. This is a beatitude. And we've been saying all along that the beatitudes are qualities that Jesus births in us when we surrender to Him. These are not things that we pull up our bootstraps and we do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strive with all my willpower to live these beatitudes. We cannot do that in our own humanness. We can try for a while. But these are things that Jesus needs to create in us. He, he gives us the types of hearts and minds that can do these things. So we surrender to Him. And you know what happens when I start looking at mercy? Is all of a sudden I realize afresh that I am pretty darn poor in spirit. And that creates in me a mourning. Lord, I wish I were more merciful. Keeps me pretty darn humble. And I hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you know what happens? He begins to birth in me and in you more and more of an ability, more and more of a heart of mercy so that we can then engage the world in mercy. Mercy is actually a gift before it's something we can offer to others. Mercy is actually a gift from God before it's something we can offer to others. And it's the gift that keeps on giving. When we receive mercy, we have a choice. We can either hoard it for ourselves or we can pass it on. If we hoard it for ourselves, we're going to lose it. It's made to be something that we pass on to others. And here's two ways that that can happen. First, mercy can be expressed in our life by the way that we live out our hunger and thirst for righteousness. Mercy is synonymous with compassion in the Bible. Biblical compassion is this gut-wrenching feeling that turns into action. To have mercy then is to do things like advocate for those who don't have a voice. Like many of you do in working with at-risk children in our community. And many others of you do working with the sex trafficking issue on an international level. To have mercy will mean love in action toward the helpless in Japan who have lost everything. So on the one hand, if we're merciful towards them, we will pray. And on the other hand, we will help as we can. That's why last week our church was able to give a $1,000 gift to Covenant World Relief. Because they have people on the, gra- uh, on the ground in Japan who know how that can be used most wisely. To have mercy means sharing. So a merciful stance toward others is a generous stance toward others. And this means that whatever we have is, is actually God's and not our own. Now, I don't know if you've been around church a while, you've heard that before. And so it's like, yeah, this guy is saying everything I've already heard before. But let me say it again. That means everything we have is God's and not our own. That means everything we have is God's and not our own. That's a much more powerful thing when you start to think about the implications. We are stewards of whatever money or property or intellect or power or position or clothing or toys, if there's any kids in the audience, uh, anything that we have. We're stewards of it, which means we are like brokers of it. We're, We're to... Take it and enjoy it and then uh, pass it on when other people need it. Stewards are not owners. 
a person submitted to Jesus recognizes that if we are successful, whatever that means, it's because God gave us the brains and the opportunities and the favor and personality to achieve. We can't simply claim ownership of things because we're American or because we've worked harder. And all those things might be true, but I guarantee you that there's somebody in an impoverished nation who could work much harder or as hard as you, and they just don't even have the opportunity. If you can't have clean drinking water, and you don't have life expectancy past 35 years old, you're not going to have the same opportunities as someone in our land. And so it humbles me to think that way, to think globally, and to realize, okay, I, I, I've been giving a huge blessing just in being born here. And in having the opportunity to go to school. And the opportunity to, you know, to have some kind of influence and things like that. And you do too. And so we're stewards of that opportunity just as much as we're stewards of the stuff we have because of that opportunity. At a leadership team meeting a few months ago, Tim McAvoy corrected me on this. I had been talking about money we spend as a church in our budgeting talks and uh, the money we spend helping others. And Tim gently suggested uh, that we use the term invest rather than spend. It's not our money to spend as a church, right? It's God's money and God's resources that we are stewarding as His people. The term spend makes it sound like we have some kind of control over it and that we can actually spend it up. Like once you get rid of it, it's gone. But the word invest, the word invest means that we're passing it along. That hope is carried with the gift that we give. Hope that it grows into something more that doesn't get spent up, but that we're investing in somebody's life. And it flowers and takes shape and does more than it is in just dollars and cents form. So thank you for that correction. That's, I try and use that language now as we talk about how we invest, I almost said give, uh, as a church. The second thing is that mercy can be about what we don't do. We can withhold judgment. We can recognize that God is so gracious to us that we really don't have a moral leg to stand on uh, when we're judging other people. Remember context. In this same sermon, just a little bit later on, Jesus is going to say, Do not judge. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye? There's a log in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, Hey, let me help you take the speck out of your eye. When behold, there is a log sticking out of your own eye. And then Jesus says to us all, You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then maybe, maybe you'll see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye or your sister's eye. So think about this in terms of personal relationships, marriages, friendships, family dynamics. How many times do we snap at each other and hold grudges and tear each other down with sarcasm or cutting looks or maybe the worst of all, the silent treatment? To have mercy is to realize that one of God's gifts is actually loving you and me despite ourselves. And we get to pass that along to other people. Small caveat here. Some 
of us have incurred pain that is disgusting and that is uh, uh, maybe for our own safety or our own sanity, we cannot have relationships with some people. Um, and I respect that. Uh, what I'm talking about here is for the other 99% of our relationships, uh, the ones that, that we can express mercy to, that we can take it easy on each other, uh, that we can show grace to one another. That's uh, what we're talking about here. Some relationships, I think, um, it's going to take until Jesus comes again to heal those things. And so I want you to hear that. <clears throat> Jesus told a parable uh, that Rachel read earlier. Matthew records it in the 18th chapter of his, of his gospel. Um, so you kind of know the story. There's two slaves. The first slave owed the king 10,000 talents. That may not mean much to you. I don't really deal in talents either. There's no talents in my wallet. Uh, but uh, talent equals about 15 years' wages for an average laborer. One talent. He owes 10,000. Uh, it would take over 55 million days to pay it off. And I know that that number is too big to really get a grasp on, so let me... Do this. It would take 150,684.932 years uh, to pay off that debt. That doesn't help either, does it? So it's a lot of money. It's way more than a person could ever pay back. In fact, experts say, remember, th this is a parable, so it's not a, a real story. Jesus is making a point. But experts say that there wasn't even 10,000 talents of money in Jesus' day. Like, it didn't, that much coinage didn't exist. So it's just ridiculous amount of debt that the slave owed the king. So the servant grovels, gets on his knees before the king. He came admitting his need and his debt, and he begged for forgiveness. And the king does something that is sure to bring ridicule and shame on himself and his peers and his advisors and his administration. He not only forgives the debt to the servant, but he sets the man free. Remember what I was telling you about this culture, like having mercy on people was not well looked upon. So this king, by uh, letting, letting the slave go, is really doing two things. He's bringing shame upon himself, which is extremely merciful. But he's also incurring that debt. Nobody is paying it back. He's just letting the guy go. And I, I think the, the, one of the important things to remember there is that this thing about having mercy, it's not a, just a touchy-feely, like, oh, that feels good, let's all get along. Mercy costs. It costs us something. When we've, I mean, sometimes we've been wronged. People do owe us. Or, uh, and extending mercy means that we don't always get the satisfaction of knowing we're right about everything. It means that we put our relationships maybe above the feeling of, uh, of superiority or being justified. Mercy is costly. The first slave was forgiven his incredible debt, but instead of reciprocating mercy to his buddy who owed him money, he mercilessly abused his fellow slave. His fellow slave owed him 100 denarius, which is about 100 days wages. That's less than a year, right? Less than a year to pay off. It's a fraction of what he had just been let go of from the king. And instead of canceling the debt, or even, I mean, best case scenario, he could have just let the guy pay it off. But he doesn't do that. He sends this fellow slave to prison 
which is a death sentence. Because in prison, a slave can't, can't create any income. And so he's in prison for life. And the king finds out about this and is furious. I just gave you mercy. How can you do this to your friend? No, 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 no. It's off. All bets are off. You're going to, you're going to prison now. So the king takes back his, his judgment on the first guy and sends him to prison. And I think that this parable begs the question, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Does that mean that we earn mercy from God by being merciful? It's kind of what it sounds like. And it's a decent enough question until we remember that mercy is a gift in the first place. We cannot become merciful without Jesus' intervention in our lives. Which means that we can't possibly earn Jesus' mercy by just trying to do it on our own. We can't earn mercy, but we can deny it. We can deny it for other people. Jesus wants to make you and me more merciful. He wants... He wants to create in us the types of hearts and minds that are predisposed to loving other people. And the question is, will we let, it, will we let Him do that? Will we surrender to Him? Will we receive the gift of mercy or deny for others what we want for ourselves? We can't really have it both ways. And I think that's the point of that parable. Um, my heart is that I want Jesus to develop more of that mercy muscle in me. Um, if you're there with me, uh, I just ask you to, to pray along silently. I want to pray a, a prayer that's in this awesome book by J. Barry Shepherd. Um, I've shared some stuff from him a few weeks ago, but he wrote a prayer book about every section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So this is from him. Let's pray. Let mercy become a way of life, a gentleness and openness to others, a general disposition to trust people. Give them at least the benefit of the doubt. Mercy also requires my unwillingness to condemn any child of God, no matter how heinous the offense may seem to me. Because the most heinous crime of all, the nailing of your sinless son, to die upon the cross for our salvation, called forth from him no bitter or angry word of judgment, rather the ultimate and surpassing word of mercy. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let that mercy root itself within my life this day, Father. May this day be permeated with your spirit of forgiveness. Amen.